0: You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 9th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Saturday, the 9th of November. This is Monocle's House View. Today... Mr Gorbachev, teared down this wall. It's been 30 years since those words announced to the world that a new era had arrived. I'll be joined by my guests, Vincent McAvinney and Stephen Diel, who covered the collapse of the Soviet Union for the BBC, to discuss this monumental moment in history. We'll also review the day's newspapers. You might have heard that there's an election happening soon. That's all ahead on Monocle's House View, starting now. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have you with us on this Saturday morning. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined today by two of our good friends, Vincent McAveney from Euronews and the Russia analyst Stephen Diehl. Good morning to you both. Good morning. good morning. Today marks the 30th anniversary of one of the most famous moments in history. The Berlin Wall, which for decades had kept those in the east of the city under the control of the Soviet regime, finally came crumbling down. And with it a new political era arrived. Now, Stephen, you covered the collapse of the Soviet Union for the BBC. So you had a front row seat to much of what took place at this moment in history.
1: I did. And indeed, if I may go back even further, uh, for nine years before 1980, this was the first time I saw the wall. And I saw it in what, for a Westerner, was rather unusual circumstances <coughs> because uh, I'd been studying in the Soviet Union for a year and I came back to Britain by train, and I came through Berlin, of course, coming from the East at about half past eleven at night. Now I'd been living in the rather gray Soviet Union. I mean that's you know life was like under communism, life was pretty dull, there wasn't a lot of a lot of color. It's the people that were wonderful to be with. but I was always trying not to make so much of this contrast, but This moment when I crossed the wall will never, never leave me. I can still see it very vividly in my mind's eye. As I say, it was half past eleven at night. So we went through this very grey city, which was East Berlin. Very few cars on the street. The only ones that were were Trabants. Very few pedestrians. No colour at all. I mean, literally, it was a black and white city. The the street lighting was even uh, white rather than yellow. And then we crossed the border, the wall, where it goes through the river Spree and I saw the watchtower, I saw the spotlights shining down on the river, and then suddenly we were hit by this blaze of colour that was West Berlin. Now, after ten months in the Soviet Union, this was was a shock in itself, but that contrast, this was one city, and suddenly you had colorful adverts and lights and street uh, street signs and and, and cars and h- headlights and people um, standing outside pubs it was the summer they were, they were drinking and laughing and uh, and it, these, these weren't this wasn't two halves of one city these were two different worlds mm. so the contrast really was phenomenal and then if we raced forward to 1989 um, we lived through history, and, and as you say, I reported on, on much of it because I was following particularly the Soviet Union, but following um, what was happening in East, East, uh, Eastern Europe closely. And even though the dominoes were falling, so Poland had gone, uh, the Hungarians had opened up their border um, with Austria allowing at least 30,000 East Germans who then travelled down and went through to Austria, and uh, people from Czechoslovakia did. Um, uh, and, and the East Germans were getting more and more nervous. Um, and someone said when Gorbachev visited, just because your neighbour changes his wallpaper does not mean to say we have to. Um, uh, and even so, this great build-up that there'd been, the demonstrations in Leipzig, which had been leading up to this moment as it's now seen, you know, historians will, will look back who weren't there and say, oh, well, it was obvious no, it wasn't. And, of course, the way the wall actually opened was quite by chance. Gunter Schabowski, who was head of the um, East German Socialist Party, that ruled East Germany, head of for Berlin, at a press conference, being very nervous, was trying to report on there will be reforms. Uh, and, and one of the journalists said to him, well, when? When's it going to happen? And, and he, shaking and not knowing really what to say, well, um, sort of immediately, and that was it. The journalists rushed out into the street saying, you know, the wall's coming down and the, the news spread quickly and East Germans rushed to the wall, West Germans rushed from the other side. And there's this wonderful, well, there's a lot of film, obviously, but there's a wonderful film clip of East German border guards not knowing what to do as people start flooding through the, the particularly Checkpoint Charlie from both sides. And and they think, well, they, you know, we can't start shooting, which is what their order was. Yeah. And, of, of course, you know, let's never forget that... Um, Uh, Over 150 people did die crossing, trying to cross the uh, the Berlin Wall, Uh, and suddenly it all it all exploded, and it really was as sudden as that.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, as you say, uh, it it happened really quickly. In many ways, it started much earlier. I mean, can you tell us what happened in 1944?
1: Well, in 1944, when the Soviet army started pushing the uh, the German, the Nazi army back. they had a policy of, of clearing out Germans, particularly from the area of Königsberg, which, of course, nowadays is called Kaliningrad, is um, part of the Russian Federation, even though it's separated geographically from the main part of Russia. Um, but, of course, Königsberg, which for, for centuries had been German, um, had a German population. No German was allowed to stay there. And so they were told to get out um, often they constructed little little barrows or if they had prams or trailers that they could just pull 12 million people. I believe it's still the, the biggest exodus ever uh, in world history. 12 million people were forced from their homes. Um, so the, 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 all these Germans who who then sort of fled to what was still, of course, one country because it, it wasn't divided, it was only divided after the end of the war. But, but there was this huge exodus. So you, you had... Um, Germans um spread across the territory um, and indeed up to 1961 they were they were all Germans of course east germany had a, a, a more rigid regime and people realized they lived in a different country but but they were still they could still go through west Ber- through berlin from east to west until that moment on the 13th of august 1961 a sunday morning when people woke up and they were building a wall and 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 down the middle of berlin um fencing off the the Soviet zone, and you had East Germans who might have been staying with friends in West West Berlin, East Berliners staying in West Berlin who couldn't get back home. You had West Berliners who were stuck in East Berlin. Um, the, 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 it's you know it's it's something which I hope that the the younger generation because a whole, of course a whole generation has growing up. It's thirty years since it came down, so that's a whole generation of people who never knew that division of of a city and indeed Europe. Um, and I hope they never do know it because mm. um, it's very difficult to get it across. It wasn't just a wall. There was a death strip. As I mentioned earlier, people were shot for trying to cross it. Um, in the river, I mentioned the first time I saw it was on the river spray. In the river, they put gratings with spikes about um, 12 centimetres long so that people didn't know they were there. They would swim into them if they didn't realise it, but they were trying to cross the river. I mean, you know, these, these are these are barbaric methods for trying to keep your people in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was in Berlin where David Bowie recorded his 1977 album Heroes. Now, this is a song about two lovers, one in East Berlin and one from the West. Now, Bowie was in Berlin. He was living with Iggy Pop and also with Brian Eno, who co-wrote the song with him. Now, Eno um, is a, a very close associate of my husband. They work together and share a studio. And we went off to uh, Berlin where... Um, They showed me where they'd lived, where "Heroes" was written, uh, and everything. It was very, it was a a very, very um, cool moment, (laughs) I have to say. Um, But that song has kind of become uh, Berlin's anthem. I think we should actually listen to a little bit of "Heroes." That's Heroes from uh, David Bowie. Thank you for your contribution to my electricity bill. Now, in 1987, Bowie played a concert in West Berlin near the Reichstag. The performance was so loud that a massive crowd gathered on the east side of the nearby wall to better hear the performance. And he could hear the the East Germans behind there. And he always said that it was one of the most affecting moments of his life, that he would never, ever forget that crowd there. And he felt like he was addressing them and, in in fact, did address them. It was an extraordinary moment. Um, And, of course, he didn't know that that actually was one of the catalysts, I think, for the beginning of the end of of the city's crushing divide. And, I mean, that's that's something that, that... that I think possibly you don't quite remember the concert, no, like <laughs> um, but no, not one yet. But certainly uh, music like that and popular culture was a big push in, in movies Yeah, cycles. you
2: know massively. Like if you go into the history of the Soviet Union, you know the Beatles were massive in Russia, and I you know watched a fantastic documentary about that and the fact that you know there was no alternative like that in Russia and the cassettes that were brought in and traded and copied and moved around. Um, and I kind of haven't had an experience like that, until I actually went to Cuba a couple of years ago, which is still, this was just before... just before the kind of US had lifted the sanctions on it and was not expecting to hear much kind of Western music because the party is still, you know, it's that locked in time like the approved music is kind of jazz and, and and Latin music and bass and stuff but they all have little USBs filled with Western music uh, and there's this roaring trade because people f- would fly in with suitcases of these USBs, managed to get them through and they'd spread Western music and, and different artists and things like that. So it's still interesting how much music plays a role and, you know, people you spoke to when you would talk about different artists and things like that would ask about you know oh have they got a new album should we be telling people to try and get this on a usb for us and it is still the kind of music which transcends you know especially with young people if uh, most movements to you know like to, to break free of kind of repression are started with young people who are still very into music and you do kind of look around today and kind of wonder i've always been amazed in the past couple of years that there's been no real protest song or album against Donald Trump. You know, music is so commercialised. All these record companies are part of huge multinational media organisations. And as far as it's, you know, most stars and performers are told, to, unless they're at a certain level, not to say a word about it. But I cannot believe that in the times that we're going when, you know, another man building a wall, that there has not really been anyone kind of stepping up. I feel even, you know, people that I thought would, like Bruce Springsteen, haven't really, there's been no kind of song that's really taken the to the building of these new walls and barriers,
0: I think Stephen disagrees.
2: No, I don't, no, I'm not disagreeing. On the contrary, um, you, you just sparked off. Georgina,
1: you sparked off a thought in my mind. Hearing that wonderful Bowie song, I love the song anyway. But um, it, 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 two, two thoughts came to me. One, you're absolutely right. It was the first time that there could that there was some sort of mass demonstration in Berlin where the, the you know the guards didn't open fire. The guards, they didn't they didn't know what to do. Rather like that moment. It, when the wall came down and they didn't know, well, we were supposed to fire, but we can't shoot at all these people. There were so many people on the East East Berlin side of the wall that they didn't know what to do. And it, also the other thing that struck me, of course, there's three moments in the history of the wall where you get a standout performance on the Western side. One is when Kennedy goes there in 1963 and comes out with the slightly amusing phrase of <laughs> Ich bin ein Berliner. And um, he should have said Ich bin Berliner because ein Berliner is a donut. Um, but the <laughs> Berliners knew what he meant and they, they, they loved him for it. Then you've got... Um, Reagan, as we heard earlier in the program, saying, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall," and and you've got Bowie. The, those are the three standout moments, which will, you know, any history that was written of the wall should include those three. I points. think and, you're
0: forgetting David Hasselhoff. Oh yeah, <laughs> didn't he do a great big concert there a few years ago? I, I th-
1: but I think even so, the the Bowie one is the one. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, and be- maybe because of the song "Hero."
2: And that yeah. was uh, in, I read a really good book about uh, JFK all in the year by Ryan Tabridi, who's an Irish kind of talk show host historian and it's about this jfk in ireland three days that changed his presidency It's when he made a state visit to ireland the first one by a u.s president but that was just after he'd started that visit in uh, berlin he also went to italy on that visit but the berlin one uh you know there was a lot of talk about the preparations that were made and and the whole team that went there and there's interviews with the team that went with jfk and they say that that stunned them that they had seen the reports they'd seen the pictures this was the city he'd lived in as a young man of course um and then when he actually got there and saw the wall it had really shaken him and he was very excited to do this trip and particularly the island section of it for historical family reasons but they talk about when they got on the plane from berlin having had this crazy day where he made that speech he was visibly shaken by what he had seen and then lands in dublin and is greeted then by you know you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of Irish people wanting to welcome him home. It was such a tumultuous day for him himself. And he went home from his trip to Ireland, just very, you know, that roller coaster of emotion, seeing the face of the enemy uh, in, in Berlin, what had been done to the city, having then seen, you know, a free European country, which was, uh, you know, celebrating him coming and then going back. And, it you know, it's worth, I think it did have a big impact on him.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you've been in, in Berlin quite recently. Uh, yeah. And there's still, I mean, there's still evidence of the wall, isn't there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I was in Berlin uh, earlier this year for the European elections. I spent a few days there talking to uh, Berliners about their feelings on the EU and life in Berlin at the moment. And it's a city, you know, it is it is the most exciting city in Europe at the moment to go to the history, the culture, all of the kind of crazy clubs and things like that. And the food was uh, amazing. But there are like signs that, that things aren't quite going right. So people, you know, I was on the former East Berlin side, so there's a stretch of the the wall that's still in place it's a kind of gallery now it is fascinating to go and see it's very popular um there's battles because a kind of very shiny new apartment block was just built literally on the side of it and they had to create an access way so there's lots of contentions about what should be done with the area but i spoke to people kind of two streets back from the wall uh, a kind of a typical kind of berlin flat old flat building and and these guys were you know they are re- they're trying to band together because in so many buildings in east berlin now because it's such a popular destination the big son of developers are buying flat by flat by flat to buy out a whole block stopping doing maintenance works and then trying to force people out and as soon as they've got everyone out they gut the place they just give it a modern polish and then it is just used only for sort of airbnbs and stays like that so it is starting to carve out that you know people wanting to go and learn about this period of history is having this effect on people who still live uh, in in east Berlin and they're saying that you know like many other european cities there needs to be some kind of curb on this kind of practice of kind of rooting people out to to create just kind of Airbnb buildings.
0: Mm. And I mean, even now, I mean, a lot of the papers were, were talking about this yesterday, and I dare say this will be a theme running through this uh, anniversary week, is that there's still such a division between East and West that, that although people are free, obviously, to come and go, uh, economically speaking, people from the West or who live in the West are so much better off.
1: In West Germany, I mean, rather than yeah. I mean, it's not just Berlin. Yeah. No, no, it is true. I mean, there are still there are still divisions, bec- and I think this is really an indication of just how far East Germany uh, and other East European countries were allowed to slip behind the West as as the West developed. I mean, you know, this was the um, it could be you know put forward as an argument between capitalism versus socialism. Um, the, the The great tragedy of socialism in practice in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe is that instead of saying, "Look the, you know certain people live at a, at a high level, let's try and bring everyone up to that level. They just brought everyone down mm. to a lower level um, and, and and so the standards of living were were much lower, and you know East Germans by 1989 had been apart for so long from West Germany, you know, that many of them found it very difficult to, even though they spoke the same language, um, ostensibly. Uh, I mean, my German is not terribly hot, but I always found it much easier to read uh, East German newspapers than West German, because there was such Russified language the political language was, was was very similar to russia i mean then the whole you know the feel of the place the feel of east berlin was far more like moscow than it was like uh, like, like west berlin so there is that you know and that division um, I think the Germans have made great strides to uh, to improve it, but it's um it's something that's going to take probably another generation before before they feel that you know Germany really is one country again.,
0: yeah, absolutely. Listen, I think it's time for us to have a look at the newspapers. So uh, let's do that after this break.
3: Monocle's designed focus November issue hits newsstands on October the seventeenth, and there's plenty to discover from all around the world. First we venture into the Syrian capital of Damascus where the military battle is over but a different war continues and meet those trying to find their way back to normality. Second, learn how bookseller James Daunt has successfully turned the UK chain Waterstones around and is now tasked with changing the fortunes of Barnes & Noble, the last remaining chain bookshop of scale in the US. Third, we take a first look at Kumanuma, a former factory-turned-culture centre in the suburbs of Paris, where gallerists are creating a new artistic community away from the crowds. Renovated by French architecture firm The Freaks, this space will host private galleries, an artist residency and exhibitions. Fourth, our design-heavy issue not only features our top 20 furniture picks, we also sit down with some of the world's most talented architects, including John Paulson and Bjarke Ingels, to talk extraterrestrial infrastructure and minimalism. Monocle's November issue is available to order at monocle.com or do the wise thing and subscribe now.
0: is Monocle's House View. My guests are Vincent McIverney and Stephen Diel and I'm Georgina Godwin. Now we're having a look at the newspapers and one of the stories that's really struck me this week is the whole debate about uh, the BBC and political bias. Of course it is An election uh, coming up on the 12th of December, and that means various uh, reporting restrictions uh, and all the rest of it. Um, But it seems that the Lib Dems and the Greens and the the sort of other parties from Scotland, from Wales, have been locked out of the major debates. What are the papers saying about this?
2: On this, I mean, to step back just for one second. So... The UK took decades to get TV debates. We only had them for the first time in 2010. And the problem was, and I know from working at one of our broadcasters, Sky, is that the process was never properly formalized. Each of the elections that we've had since then, we've had three elections in that time period, there has been a smorgasbord of various formats and the way they've been done, the numbers of them. We've had debates with just two people or the three leaders going after each other or seven on one stage at a time. It has been pretty chaotic. And what all the broadcasters have wanted to do is to have an independent body, like in the US, that says, these are the three debates, these are the rules, these are the rules on who can participate. The problem is we don't have these defined rules. And the the thing is, because this hasn't come together, the broadcasters all end up competing with each other. So I remember at a time when I was at Sky, I was given an edict that I needed to, in the build up to the 2015 election, I think it was, we needed to get as many uh, senior level politicians on camera, whatever the interview was, to ask them in the end about election debates. Should there be election debates again? What should it be? Because it's the broadcasters just trying to put the pressure on. And because these rules haven't been properly codified, you're getting this situation now where Joe Swinson, the Lib Democrat uh, leader, is, is saying it's unfair, but the broadcasters simply still want to have these debates but it's very clear that the Labour Party and the Conservatives have said we'll only do them if the Lib Dems aren't coming in because the one thing that, you know, Tories and Labour dislike each other, but they both really hate the Conservative, uh, sorry, the Liberal Democrat Party because they're very tricky campaigners on the ground. Their adverts can, you know if we've seen already this week their leaflets are quite misleading and they do have some dirty tactics that they use. So they really don't like the Lib Dems. They often prefer going head to head with each other.
0: Very interesting, isn't it, Uh, Stephen? Have you been following this at all?
1: I have, and I think um, I mean now. Now I no longer work for the BBC. I don't have to be completely um, uh, unbiased, and I can actually (laughs) make my views better known on Monocle. Um, And I mean, I I think it's it's, what what I think is really outrageous. Um, And I actually want, like I think, a lot of people. Want some sort of middle ground back in British politics because the Conservatives and Labour Party have become so extreme in the, in their views that I think it's, it's this is a real danger. They they talk about uniting the country after the uh, after the election. Um, if either of them wins, the country will not be united. I mean, the country's been mm. split by the Brexit debate anyway. But um, you know, so I'm 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 all in favour of having a, a, a strong Lib Dem. And I think what really what worries a lot of the Conservatives, I, I, I would go f- further back than Vincent, and say they're frightened, actually. The Conservatives and the Labour are frightened of the Lib Dems because of, because of what you know, they might actually get a good showing. But what the BBC have done by saying, oh, we're going to have Boris Johnson for the Conservatives and Jeremy Corbyn for Labour and just the two of them, that is it's almost saying to the electorate, well, it's going to be one of these two. You know, forget about the Lib Dems, and mm-hmm. you, know, you know that that that's a really um, pernicious message for the BBC to send out, whether they intended it or not. And um, you know that that saying, well, one of these two is going to be prime minister, and the Lib Dems are saying, actually, you know, we could not only hold the balance of power, possibly many people don't think they would win a majority, but but in any case, it. I, I just think you know that we have had yes, a, you know, a, we have a two-party chamber. The, the the chamber is you know it's the, the government and the opposition but the lib dems have done better in in uh, in recent years and i think that
2: but it, it on should... on that point i'd weigh in and just say yeah. though that who's the third biggest party in the uk right now SMT. both exactly they have 35 mps considerably scottish more than the lib dems yeah. the scottish national party they have 35 mps they're projected to get up to 56 or 57 of the 59 seats in scotland they deserve a place and although yes they are a party only in one part of this country it is a united kingdom their leader should be at these debates, has a better claim to it than Joe Swinson does. Because if they're not included in these debates, if we end up in a situation next year where there is by, you know, a second referendum in Scotland, they will point back and say they shut us out of the election to try and stop us getting our message out. It's them against us. The media is biased against Scotland. And, you know, if there is a, a second referendum in Scotland next year, I can see them going independent, definitely, Mm -hmm. because they'll use this narrative that they're getting to build an election, that, look, they didn't let us talk in the debates, but we still won pretty much all the seats. They're denying us getting this uh, referendum. It is, you know, a a stitch-up. I think it's a bit of a own goal to not include the SNP.
1: Yeah, but, uh, I mean, okay, so make it four-way. But, I mean, I think it is that they're... You know, the, the awkward point there is that they, as you say, they represent only one part of the country. So, you know, if people in... Devon and Cornwall in the south of England, uh, you know, have, have particular issues, then they say, well, you know, what's it got to do with the SNP? Um, so that, you know, that, whereas Liberal Democrats are involved everywhere. I think that's the argument for the, for the Liberal oh.
2: Democrats to be included.
0: Can we just leave UK politics for a moment? <laughs> what else is in the papers?
2: Uh, well, it's part of this story, which I think is quite interesting, obviously, build up to Christmas, everyone thinking about what they're going to get, uh, friends and family for presents, and it is the unexpected comeback of the cassette tape, uh, <laughs> something that, you know, was probably popular in Berlin back in the day with David Bowie's songs. Um, but, yeah, it's it's the younger artists, they're talking about Billie Eilish, who uh, was only born in 2001 when the cassette was considered pretty dead, have been uh, deciding to release music on the cassette tape. Robbie Williams is uh, putting out a Christmas album that will also be on cassette tape. There've been 100,000 uh, sold in 2019, which is doubled 2018's figure. I mean, my memory of cassette tapes is, you know, they were great for recording the chart on a Sunday, free music. That mm-hmm. was pretty good. I remember having to stop and start just in time and then you'd have all the new songs for the week in your Walkman. Um, but, yeah, I'm surprised that, you know, the, the, the quality wasn't particularly great and I remember them going astray and you had to wind them back with a pen. But, yeah, that's the surprise Christmas gift that everyone apparently wants. But, year. you
0: know, and they were very, very useful of going back to Berlin type stories um, in, in political activism so when I, when I was forced to leave Zimbabwe and I came here and was broadcasting on shortwave back into Zimbabwe not everybody had access to a shortwave radio so we would tape the, the broadcast we would put it onto cassette tape, we would ship the tapes back into Zimbabwe and then they would be played on the commuter omnibuses so that people travelling around the country could hear the news and it's just we could not have done that without cassettes
1: Yeah, no cassettes, I mean when I'm when I started at the BBC, you know, if we if people wrote wrote in wanting a copy of a program, they were sent a, a cassette, um, and you know, it was a it was a nice, neat, small form in a little plastic box. It was you know, it was very handy. The for me, the, the biggest problem was that the tape over time would often would stretch, and, and as you say, Vincent, also sometimes they'd stick. Little wheels would stick, and you ah take it out and get a pen and try and turn it on yeah. a bit. And, um,
2: and those
0: long ribbons of tape, yeah. <laughs> would then out. Come out. Yes, yeah. <laughs> And I
2: remember the last time I use, I can remember the last time I used one was my French a levels. This was 2006. The school had had to go online to buy cassette players for us all because you couldn't buy them. People didn't have these to bring their own. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, if this cassette breaks this is going to screw me up so bad. It was such a precarious <laughs> technology. I just remember thinking, like, it was good. The stop-start was good. You could quick-rewind, which I, they do it now with a digital file and things. And They must have to use a laptop. But I just remember it was a quick way of doing it. but I thought, if this cassette breaks, then my exam is screwed. This is crazy. Yeah.
0: your <laughs> idea. Time for one quick last one, Stephen.
2: One quick last one. I will say that um,
1: advertising. Advertising sometimes can be most unfortunate. Um, I have in front of me a copy of The Eye. Um, on the front cover, it's got houses in Yorkshire completely flooded out. And if you turn to the inside back cover, um, you have an advert for a particular beer made in Yorkshire with two men standing in pouring rain flooded up to their waists and one saying, turned out nice again, why we love the rain in Yorkshire. I mean, uh, that's just oh, so price. tactless. I've seen, I've seen digital versions look so bad, but actually to have it in print, someone should have done a bit of thinking about
0: that. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's appalling, actually. Uh, just quickly before we go, how did you do in your French A-level?
2: Uh, yeah, fine. I've gotten it all now.
0: <laughs> so uh, that'll be a, an au revoir from Vincent. It still
2: says, uh, you know, working <laughs> level on my CV. So. <laughs> How
0: do you say goodbye in Russian, Steve? Just with Daniel. Right, that too. Uh, and goodbye from me. That's all for today. Our supervising producer was Ben Ryland, our researcher and our studio manager was Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.